philosophically at a, at a high level, I don't think there is a balance between brand and performance marketing. I think it's all about performance marketing. And this is where I think marketers get themselves in trouble. And I've certainly probably been guilty of in my career is you have an idea, but you're not sure how to measure it. And well, it's really going towards long-term brand building. And at the end of the day, I get paid to sell pizza. Welcome to Clicks to Bricks, the podcast about multi-location marketing. I'm your host, Rob Reed. Our mission is to inform and entertain multi-location marketers through the stories of top CMOs, senior executives, and subject matter experts. Over the past 10 years, multi-location marketing has become a unique and specialized discipline within the broader marketing universe. And we believe it deserves a dedicated forum in which to learn and exchange ideas. This is why Clicks to Bricks exists. My guest today is the Executive Vice President and CMO of Domino's. Art D'Elia oversees a massive organization that includes more than 800 U.S. franchisees and tens of thousands of frontline workers. Though initially challenging, the pandemic has been a windfall for the company as demand for food delivery skyrocketed. How does Art feel about third-party delivery services, brand action, and influencer marketing? Keep listening to find out. Art D'Elia, thanks so much for joining us on Clicks to Bricks. Hey, Rob. Nice to meet you. So I wanted to uh, start out with actually a fun fact about Art D'Elia. A fun fact. So my first job was actually as a lifeguard. I used to summer in New Jersey. Did you save any lives there? I did. Lots of them. So lots of <laughs> weekenders that had never swam in the ocean before. So yes. That's quite, that's quite a bit to say that that's, you've done. That's impressive. The big news for you is a recent promotion to executive vice president and still CMO. So first, congratulations on that. How is this impacting your role? Is this adding things to your plate or is there a bit of give and take there? Yeah. So before I was CMO over our US business uh, and in my new role, my responsibilities expanded to our international business as well. So now oversee the entire global marketing organization. And in addition to working with our domestic franchisees, also working with what we call our master franchisees in our international business. So is that reduced some of the emphasis on your US role at all? My U.S. role will still be where I spend the vast majority of my time, but certainly we'll, we'll spend more time going forward working on our international business as well. You've mentioned in the past, too, that your role is kind of part marketing and part franchisee relations. So now that's extending globally. How do you describe the franchisee relations distinct from your role as a, as a marketer? Yeah, it's an important one. In the U.S., our franchisees contribute to what we call a national advertising fund, and that is the budget that we use to do all of our marketing and our domestic business. And they entrust me to manage their money and, and maximize the ROI and that investment. That means that I need to have a very close working relationship with them to make sure that they feel good about the marketing investments we're making on their behalf. So that is as important of a job for me as it is marketing to consumers. 
we're fortunate in the Domino system to have a really strong working relationship with our franchisees. You've probably seen in the media, there's a lot of systems where there's been a lot of tension between the franchisor and franchisee. Certainly, we will have healthy debates with our franchisees, but one of the things that I've learned in my time at Domino's is we get a lot of acknowledgement for technology and other things that we've done, but from the inside, what really has been a key driver of our success is the strong working relationship we have with our franchisees. And what, what is that communication like? I mean, you've got 800 franchisees in the U.S., and they're probably range from a couple locations to some pretty big companies with, with a lot of locations, right? Yeah. So actually two different models. So you're right. In our domestic business, we have about 800 franchisees. And then in our international business, that's primarily a master franchisee model, some of which are actually publicly traded companies. So in the domestic system with those 800 franchisees, we have advisory boards that are franchisee representatives that help us with on different topics. Uh, so in my area, marketing, and we really work very closely with those advisory boards, which we ask to be the voice of the franchisees, uh, to talk to their fellow franchisees, understand what's on their mind, and help us really craft our marketing calendar, what we refer to as our national marketing calendar, and give us feedback on specific initiatives. And, and that dialogue and back and forth is really helpful to make sure that we're doing things that are not only right for the consumer, but right for our franchisees. So it's like a, a representative type of government within a it, franchise organization it, that big, huh? It is. We, we call them advisory boards, but they really play a very important role. And, and the strength of our advisory boards is one of the reasons why I think we have such a strong working relationship with our franchisees. I definitely want to get back to the the franchisees in, a, in more of a marketing context. But before that, you joined Domino's in 2018. So you're a couple years in. What were some of your initial priorities when you arrived? Yeah. So as you might know, the, the business was doing incredibly well back in 2018. So it certainly wasn't a turnaround situation. So it was really more about sustaining growth. And from a marketing perspective, it meant continuing to increase the pace of innovation. Innovation has been a key to our success. And the brief that I got when I arrived is, hey, let's keep the foot on the gas when it comes to innovation. So that was really the key focus of mine when I arrived in 2018 and still to this day is a key focus because it is really important that we continue to innovate. Innovation in terms of the creative and you know how you're running campaigns, or are you referring to technological innovation, or maybe is it both? I think it's both. You know, our marketing model, we really believe in brand actions. All of our marketing ideas start with an action that we think helps us make the pizza experience what we call more magical. That is really, I think, been critical to our success because it's not just about telling a nice story in an ad and having an engaging story that's communicated through a TV spot. It's really doing something that makes the pizza experience more magical or better in some way. And you have to constantly innovate to come up with those brand actions. So in my world, that's really where innovation focuses is, is finding that next new brand action that makes our consumer's pizza experience more magical. So is, it, is that brand action philosophy something that you brought when you arrived? Was that a shift or it had predated you? 
It had. So Russell Wiener, who was one of my predecessors, who really was the architect behind the infamous pizza turnaround, brought that model to Domino's and has continued. So it is really important to the way we go to, to market. And What's special I found about Domino's is is in a lot of companies, they follow the brand action model, but that brand action model only sits within the marketing function. Where at Domino's, really what we do is it's about company actions, and that's where cross-functionally we partner to support those brand actions, and that allows us to bring in technology, bring in operations and other areas of the company, uh, which gets us to, to more powerful consumer ideas and I think better marketing. Yeah, dive in a little deeper on a couple of the campaigns. One of the things I like about your campaigns and these brand actions is they're tied into local, which I'm a huge advocate of local, but you had the pothole one campaign, fill in the potholes, and then you had the, I forget the name of the campaign, but it's it's where the pizza could be delivered anywhere. You know, it doesn't have to be delivered to us. So talk to me about those campaigns and kind of how they came about and how they performed maybe. Yeah, both were really successful. I think the second campaign you're referring to is what we called hotspots. Uh, yeah, hotspots. Um, yeah, we you could get delivered to all sorts of different locations. You know, I think in each of those, you know, the pothole example there, we have a big carryout business. We're obviously best known for our delivery business, but we've also built a big carryout business, and we wanted to help our consumers get their pizza home in good condition. No one likes when you have your pizza sitting on the passenger seat and you hit a big pothole and it ruins your pizza. So again, that was one of those examples where it wasn't us making a political statement about infrastructure or anything like that. It was literally focused on trying to make our customers' pizza experience better. Same with hotspots, right? You know, one of the shortcomings I think of delivery historically was you had to get something delivered to a traditional address. But, you know, if you're at the beach, at a park or something like that, it was really difficult to get a pizza delivered there. We wanted to make it easier for people to get pizza delivered anywhere. So that was the idea behind hotspots. And, and it continues to be an important service method for us. In fact, We've seen a lot of our franchisees have set up hotspots on college campuses and, you know, students going in between class or in central locations on college campuses set up a hotspot to make pizza delivery more convenient. How is that executed? Because I'm, I'm also very interested in the, in the technology part of that. Does the franchisee use some kind of interface to say, okay, here's a spot and that I can deliver to. So the, the franchisees are actually creating the hotspots themselves and they can do that as, as much as they want. They are creating the hotspots. So we created tools for them to be able to do that. And it was important to us and our franchisees that they have control over it because we want them to make sure that they're doing it in a way uh, that's safe for their drivers. And safety was a real concern. And those franchisees know their local delivery areas really well and know what locations aren't going to put their drivers in an unsafe situation. So that's why we designed it that way. And that local knowledge, in addition to addressing the safety concerns, you know, allows it to put them in the best locations that are going to be most convenient for consumers. They know the boat docks, they know the most popular beach entrances or where people like to picnic in a park. That local insight is really helpful. And then, of course, you were there just driving the awareness for this new feature to the consumer, right? 
Absolutely. You know, that's where we leverage the scale of our media buy uh, to be able to drive quick awareness for consumers to let them know that they have this new way to get their pizza delivered. So I, I do have this perception of Domino's as part restaurant company, but also part technology company and part logistics company. And I think some of that has to do with why Domino's stock is, the stock has performed so incredibly well over the past five years. Is there a lot of truth to that? And and is that something that Domino's kind of considers itself? I think it it links back a little bit to what we were talking about before around company actions. You know, we were one of the the pioneers in food delivery. Uh, actually, this December is our 60th anniversary. And food delivery is all about convenience. And for the first 50 so uh, years of our existence, you know, the focus was really on the speed of delivery. And that's where we focused our logistics and operations to really be the best in the business at getting you your pizza as fast as possible. Where that shifted in the last decade is to also look at the ordering process and make ordering a pizza more convenient. You mentioned earlier our Anywhere ordering platforms. We wanted to take as much friction out of the ordering process as possible. And we were one of the pioneers in the industry in doing that to really try to make a better consumer experience and make it easier to order a pizza because people don't order a pizza until they're hungry. But then when you're hungry, you want your food and you want it to be easy. And that's where the technology piece has come in, is really we've been able to to leverage our technology uh, capabilities to create, I think, a much better ordering experience uh, for our consumers over the last decade. Well, so obviously every restaurant now can jump into the delivery game because of all the third-party delivery services like DoorDash. Do you think of DoorDash as, a, as an indirect competitor at all, or are they making other brands more competitive with Domino's? I would say we view them as a direct competitor. A direct competitor? There you go. Not an indirect better. So the industry terminology that we use is the aggregators. And that's the DoorDashes and Grubhubs and Uber Eats. And absolutely, they are a competitor of ours now in the food delivery space. So it's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about to make sure that we have a differentiated offer versus them. And, you know, as you might know, we're, we're one of the few major players that does not partner with the aggregators. Yeah, I would have to struggle to, to think of another one, I guess. <laughs> Sum up for me how Domino's has performed during the pandemic. What was the company's initial response? Did you immediately know this would be a huge opportunity that played to your strengths, that Domino's would have a pretty big competitive advantage? And then what what have the performance numbers been? Yeah, I think like everyone, it's been a really stressful time. It's been an unprecedented event. And we knew that we had an incredibly strong and resilient business model. And we had been preparing for this in many ways for a long time. You know, we have a very small dine-in business in the U.S. and are predominantly carry-on delivery, which was really well-suited for the situation we find ourselves in today. And pizza is the ultimate delivery food. Uh, in many ways, pizza was designed to be delivered. You know, as a result of that, it's one of the categories during this pandemic that has really had explosive growth. And, and being the leader in the category, we've certainly been a large driver of that growth. And Q2, our same-store sales were, were 16.1%, which is a huge number for a business our size. So certainly, consumers have turned to pizza in a big way since this uh, crisis started. 
were there a lot of operational challenges in pivoting to the pandemic or was it a pretty seamless thing? No, there there was a lot of challenges. We pretty much rewrote 60 years of standard operating procedures in, a, in about a month. And, you know, safety was the primary concern. We wanted to make sure that we were putting procedures in place that first and foremost kept our team members safe. And then we wanted to make sure that we were reassuring our customers that we were doing everything possible to keep them and their food safe. So we had to move really quickly to put a lot of new processes in place. You know, in particular around contactless delivery and contactless carry out were two of the big initiatives to really enable that safe delivery or pickup of uh, our customers' food at our stores. And so what was the marketing response when it all happened? Was it to basically shut everything down and then kind of reassess? Yeah, we, it was, the marketing response was uh, we had to move really fast. I will tell you now, it was a lot of long days and nights and really stressful. And, you know, from a marketing perspective, I really wanted to get messages out there very quickly that reassured consumers that they could get pizza delivered safely from Domino's. So that was the pivot to change our messaging up and all of the ads that we had on TV and social to really focus on contactless delivery and the other things that we were doing in our stores to make their food safe. So that was was the key focus and still is a focus today. I think it's still important that we continue to reassure consumers that we're doing everything possible to keep them and their food safe. So in terms of investment, was it pretty consistent then pre and post? You just You just shifted the message, but the investment stayed more or less the same? Yeah, we've made some tactical changes, but we have not taken our foot off the gas. You know, our franchisees really pride themselves in stepping up. You know, we have a long history after natural disasters, in particular hurricanes, on being the first restaurant to open. So our franchisees took a lot of pride in us being referred to by many as, as essential workers really helping feed people that were at home. So we have leaned in and used our marketing resources to really help educate consumers on how they could get food delivered safely and making sure consumers knew, because there's been a lot of economic disruption too, of the value that we offered as they try to make ends meet and, and feed their families. So what, what role do the franchisees play in marketing? Do, are they empowered to do some of their own marketing and make some of their own investment to drive incremental sales? Or is it all just pretty much left up to corporate? No, a lot of our franchisees do a lot around local marketing. And you know what's great about our franchisee model, these are people that have really invested in the brand. This is a lifelong investment for them. And as a result of that, they're really passionate about the brand, which I love as the marketing guy. And they do a lot. And it sounds like you're a big advocate of local. And our franchisees really spend a lot of resources and time making sure that we're building our brand in their local communities. And, you know, we provide a lot of tools and I have a field marketing team that helps support them. And not only do franchisees in many cases do investments for their own organizations, we also have a number of markets where franchisees partner together in what we call a co-op investment to uh, to market in that particular city or, or geography. And, and they do some great stuff there. You know, there's some great local activation of the brand that they do. So that is a, a big part of our marketing model. So similar to the auto industry, do they hire their own agencies and, and do some of their own stuff locally, the co-ops? 
So we we help them manage the local co-ops just to help them and make it more cost efficient and be able to share best practices. They determine the funding rate. They determine the mechanics. And we help them with the actual buys, the media planning, and the creative. So there's there's no real opportunity for the franchisees to kind of go off the reservation and <laughs> kind of screw things it, up. You kind of put some guardrails in place. We try to. We try to. They certainly can do their own stuff. but. We, I think, have built a trusting relationship with them that they know we're the experts in marketing and, and we try to provide them the tools uh, so they can focus on giving great service to uh, to their customers. I've noticed a, a bit of a pivot to UGC campaigns. seems like, you know, after things settled down a bit, it would seem. What are those and, and how are those performing so far? Yeah, I think, you know, UGC in particular on social has been a big part of, of what we do. I would actually categorize it more as, as real stories. Um, if you look at our advertising reel, we put a lot of our franchisees in our ads. We put a lot of real consumers in our ads. And I think as all advertisers try to overcome consumer cynicism towards ads, you know, having those real and authentic stories resonates. And, you know, I'm really lucky to, to have these unbelievable franchisees that I can showcase in ads. And, and when we do that, it, it makes my job easier because they're really characters and personalities and figures that can really resonate with consumers. So we do that a lot. And we try to use a lot of real consumers in our ads as well. And again, because it's a much more authentic and I think honest approach to advertising that that's worked for us. You had done some in the past. And so these new campaigns were more or less an extension of what you're already doing. But yeah, I guess my, my perception was that with production shut down completely, that it was a pivot but it does sound like it's it's still consistent with your 2020 marketing plan as it was. Yeah, very much so. So it uh, certainly isn't a new approach or play. We have had to. It's been very difficult to do a traditional ad production during this. So it is true that we've had to get creative in producing content. We have a campaign on air right now that actually was the family of one of the creative directors from our agency. So those are the types of things that we've had to do because you can't be on a production lot in LA right now. So that part has been different. Talk to me about the balance between brand and performance marketing. Uh, this is a topic that I pretty much bring up on every episode. And I just really, I love the answers because they, they really, there's such a spectrum there. And obviously I would consider you a brand guy for sure. But at the same time, Domino's CRM just has to be insane, right? And the technology there. How do you think about, how do you think about those two things in terms of like a pendulum and a balance? Yeah, I guess I would answer it on two levels. So I, I certainly know what you mean by the question. And, and there is a big direct response component to what we do, in particular, because we're such a big e-com business. So that being said, though, philosophically at a, at a high level, I don't think there is a balance between brand and performance marketing. I think it's all about performance marketing. And this is where I think marketers get themselves in trouble. And I've certainly probably been guilty of in my career is you have an idea, but you're not sure how to measure it. And well, it's really going towards long-term brand building. And at the end of the day, I get paid to sell pizza. 
you know, I'm really fortunate to be in a business model now where we have access to an unbelievable amount of data through our digital ordering platforms, our loyalty programs, and all of the infrastructure that we've built to capture data. So I have tools and visibility into the marketing inputs, what they create in terms of outputs. So I can be really disciplined about the investments that we make. And, and I think that's really crucial in this day and age. You have to be able to show an ROI for your investments. And and I had the added pressure of, in our business model, franchisees entrusting their incredibly hard-earned money to, to fund our marketing initiatives. And I want to make sure they're getting a good return on that investment. Oh, I love that. That is, that is a great answer. I mean, not totally not what I expected, which is excellent. And And I had listened to a podcast that you did with your agency where it was like, oh, yeah, this, you know, like marketing is part art and part science. He's like, no, it's actually all <laughs> science now, right? Like, so it seems like you've come around to that, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So even when you're getting creative, it's like, I guess if you're, if you're looking at two different types of creative, the one that's going to drive the more performance is the one that you're going to, you're going to go with, not the one that maybe seems more creative. Absolutely. And, you know, the science piece of it, we, um, we're big believers in copy testing. So we copy test everything we do. We do a lot of A-B tests. We do a lot of testing control for our digital media. We do a lot of marketing mix work. So from the creative side and the media side, everything we do has data behind it. And, and like I said before, we're really fortunate to own the data to be able to measure it. So it does give us a big advantage in that sense. Which brings me to a topic of unbranded search, which is the most pure performance that you could probably get. You know, I mean, Pizza Near Me is probably one of the most popular local searches. And increasingly, consumers are doing unbranded search as opposed to branded search like eight out of 10 times. They're searching for pizza and not searching for brand the brand only really kind of plays a role if it ends up in like the top three results. And then, and then maybe you make a brand choice from that point. So do you have an express strategy to, to capture organic search traffic? Are you measuring this channel? Without question. So we got a, we got a whole team focused on search. It's a, it's a big part of our marketing mix, everything from paid search what search terms we're optimizing on, local listings, a big important component of it. We spend a lot of time trying to optimize that. And like I said before, we have the benefit of having data where we can do a lot of testing controls to really help optimize on that. But search drives a lot of our online ordering. So it's important that we get that right. And I don't mean to get too deep into the weeds on this one, but if you see a click to call from Google My Business, are you valuing that individual call? Would you put a dollar amount on that? Yeah, I mean, if it leads to an order, absolutely. So, I mean, ultimately, everything's well. You know, it's hard. It's actually hard to tell if it that, led to that an order, is, right? You know, you're right. You, you can just see the data. Somebody did a search, clicked Google My Business, they called the location. I mean, how often do they call and not make a order? I guess is that you'd have to think about that, right? That's the assumption that we make is the good thing is, is the majority of our ordering happens online. Um, so it's a little bit easier yeah. to trace it back. And you're right. The assumption is if they're going to call the store, they're going to order a pizza. So we have a pretty good sense of, of what it's driving. So that's pretty much at the micro level right there. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Marketing. 
That's, you know what though? But it is it is really important. So I mean, you know, especially for a business like ours. This is not something obviously you would have had exposure to in your previous roles. You were with Danone and you were with Pepsi. Was there a big adjustment in coming from CPG into multi-unit retail? Now that you've been here, do you now have a preference for one over the other? The biggest difference, which we just started to talk about, is in CPG, the retailer owns the data, not the manufacturer. And in you know the multi-unit retail space, we own the data um, and we own the customer exchange. And that is a huge difference. I knew there was going to be a difference as a result of that. But in my first couple of months, um, I sat in a whole bunch of meetings, you know, with my jaw on the floor on the data access that we had versus what I had in CPG, which is there, you know, maybe a Walmart or a Kroger gives you a little bit something here or there, but you just don't have the access to the data and the granularity of the data that you have in retail. And that has been really fantastic. And, you know, as a marketer, it gives you so many more levers to pull. And, you know, as we all shift from mass to precision, that data enables real precision marketing. So, you know, we certainly tried it and CPG continues to try to go after precision marketing, but it's hard because ultimately the retailer owns that consumer transaction and the data uh, where in, in our business, we own it, which really enables us to do that to a much greater degree. So is your preference now in multi-unit retail, it sounds like? It is. It is. Yeah, it's been it's been a great transition. I love my CPG experience. I worked for some great companies, learned a lot, worked on some great brands, but I've really enjoyed the restaurant industry. And you're right, because you have more levers to pull, it, it is more fun as a marketer, which is probably why you're seeing more and more CPG alums uh, go over to the restaurant industry. Yeah, I think you know, Fernando Machado is a big kind of high profile <laughs> version of that coming from Dove to Burger King. And that seemed like to be a, a pretty surprising shift, but it's, he seems like he's having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. If right? you, uh, certainly if you follow him on social media, it looks like it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Anything at Danone or Pepsi that kind of set you up for this role though, even though you didn't have the access to the to the retail? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I had uh, great experiences at both companies, um, fantastic marketing academies, and and I think I gained a lot of valuable experiences. You know, Pepsi, I think I really learned how to think strategically and and communicate powerfully there. Um, I think world class in their strategy capabilities. And Danone, they may be a better marketer. Danone has some great marketing capabilities. And part of my experience at Danone, too, was working in the UK on their European yogurt business and working internationally with them and, and having an experience outside of the States, I think, you know, certainly has helped prepare me for my global responsibilities now. And so what advice would you give someone in a junior role, maybe starting as, you know, marketing manager? at Domino's and aspires to one day have your role, do they just stay in multi-unit retail? Do they try to get some other experience? Do they try to work in different departments, maybe in, in technology? What's the advice? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We're just about to kick off our MBA recruiting this week on recruiting for interns for next summer. And you know, historically, and I certainly made that choice, you really went to, if you wanted to get into brand marketing in particular in food and beverage, you went to consumer packaged goods. Those companies were considered the marketing academies of the industry, the P&Gs, Unilever's, Pepsi and Cokes of the world. 
you know, I would argue that that is changing now. And what we're certainly trying to build at Domino's, but I think a lot of others in the industry, McDonald's, et cetera, are trying to create those same marketing academies in their organization because the industry historically was really operations driven. But more recently, everyone has moved to a more consumer and marketing centric model. And as a result of that, everyone wants to continue to elevate their marketing capabilities. So I hope we can start to become a training ground and a, and a marketing academy like like CPG used to. And what really benefited me in my consumer packaged goods careers is going through different rotations to work on different brands, work on different specializations within marketing. And I think that made me a much more well-rounded marketer and certainly helped prepare me for my current job where I oversee all those different functions. So I think having as many different experiences within marketing to learn all the different pieces of the function is really important and makes you an attractive candidate because as you have business needs and, and need to flex the organization, you have someone that can do a lot of different things within the function. Well, that's pretty much the core thesis of this podcast, that multi-location marketing is is highly specialized and and it's really only become that in the last 10 years because of technology advancement through loyalty programs and, and the platforms that you really have to know as a marketer and know how to leverage those that you just don't need to know in CPG because you don't have the, the brick and mortar. That's really insightful. Do you find that the multi-unit retail is faster paced than CPG? I know CPG for a while had a reputation of really being slow moving. I think that's changed. So I think they get an unfair rap for that. I, th I think they've become much more agile and there's a lot of hyper competitive categories that CPGs are competing in that, you know, requires you to move fast in multi-unit retail. It is also fast paced. It's hyper competitive as well. I mean, both industries are really, really competitive and as a result of that, you have to move fast. And certainly in our business, the food delivery space is evolving really rapidly. And in many ways, COVID has accelerated that evolution. So one of the things I need to continue to help us with is how we continue to move even faster to make sure that we're meeting the needs of, of consumers and continue to help franchisees run profitable businesses. How is your department structured for career advancement? Do you have a do you have a bias toward promoting internally versus recruiting externally? Yeah, the bias is definitely to promote internally. We have some great people in our organization. I'm fortunate to have an incredibly talented team. We've worked hard on building our bench strength. And absolutely, the idea is to rotate them through different opportunities and you know, it's one of the benefits of being a large multi-unit retailer with a global organization is it creates a lot of opportunities for people. And as you talked about before, our model, there's a lot of different things that we do. Digital experience, loyalty, menu innovation, lots of different media investments, both national and local. So it gives marketers an opportunity to really focus on a lot of different aspects of the marketing mix. All right, we're coming up toward the end here. Wanted to make sure I have some time for the lightning round to throw out a few topics and just get your initial response and thoughts on those. Let's start with Generation Z. Tough to reach. 
Um, so that's my knee-jerk reaction to that. You know, certainly that's going to be the future Domino's consumer. So we're talking a lot about them, but they, like every new generation, are absolutely harder to reach uh, than previous generations. Uh, how about influencer marketing then? Kind of a dovetail there. I'll give you a, a provocative answer to that. I think a lot of influencer marketing is lazy marketing. Borrowing equities is pretty easy. So I'm not a huge fan of influencer marketing. Fair enough. Final question. Are there other leaders in multi-unit retail that you've followed and would want to see interviewed here? I'll give you one. A former colleague of mine, uh, Pepsi, who's CMO at McDonald's now, Morgan Flatley. I'd love to hear you interview her. Oh, that'd be excellent. She just got actually to the top of the list. So, <laughs> Art D'Elia, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Rob. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it on LinkedIn and to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter at clickstobricks.fm for exclusive content and previews of upcoming shows. I'm your host, Rob Reed, and this is Clicks to Bricks, a podcast about multi-location marketing. Mm-hmm.